Well, thank you, Mrs. Carlson and Mrs. Sunoon, for that lively violin duet. The music helps us to share in the joy of the Sabbath, and we hope that you're all rejoicing in the Sabbath today. Well, greetings to all our brethren around the world, and welcome to our guests. Uh, my wife and I were in Statesville, North Carolina, last Sabbath, and the brethren pass on their greetings to you from Statesville. Thank you all for your Holy Day offerings. As some of you may have heard, we had an increase in our Holy Day offering over last year for Pentecost of 11.8%. So that was very, very encouraging. So again, keep praying for more laborers and co-workers and donors, and uh, pray for the response to the semi-annual letter. As you heard in the announcements, we have a very strong response. In fact, uh, the mailing processing department just mailed out yesterday 8,777 DVDs. So in response to uh, the letter. So uh, I hope uh, 777 isn't a matter of completion. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to mail out as time goes on. How many of you have seen the semi-annual DVD, Tomorrow's World Behind the Scenes? Can I see your hands? Oh, excellent. Good. That's 45%. Another 55% need to see the DVDs. But we're again very excited about the response to the semi-annual letter. We're also very thankful to hear about Dr. Meredith's successful London presentation, Tomorrow's World special presentation there, with 290 that were present. And as you heard the announcements, as a result, actually, of these presentations, we're starting this Sabbath today in Brazelton, Georgia, a new congregation. We already started a new congregation in Manhattan, New York, as a result of the special presentations. So again, we're thankful for that growth. Dr. Meredith last week in his telecast gave the telecast topic, Will America Cease to Exist?, which offered the booklet, The World Ahead, What Will It Be Like? I was just personally struck by the plain, powerful presentation of the true gospel, of the gospel of the kingdom of God that he preached. And we just see that God is using the telecast, Dr. Meredith and others, to preach the truth to the world. And when we realize, will America cease to exist, we take a look in, around the world and we realize that we are in a global economic crisis. The Dow Jones went below 10,000 last week, but it's just come up above that. Hungary was the last nation to trigger an economic decline. The oil spill in the Gulf is uh, still... Uh, spreading and no solution has yet been uh, implemented. And when you look at some of the photos, just pathetic to see a pelican just doused in oil. Just very, very sad to see what our world is coming to. North and South Korea are on alert, war alert. And then we have the social problems we heard in the sermonette of failed families. We need God's kingdom to come. And we need the gospel to be preached. We need the return of Christ. And we need true Christianity for the world. What percentage of the world's population professes Christianity? We have 6.8 billion human beings on the face of the earth. 2.1 billion profess Christianity. That's 31% of the world's population. 1.5 billion profess Islam. That's 22% of the world's population. 1.1 billion are irreligious, atheists, or agnostics. That's 
And then there are 900 million Hindus, which comprise 13% of the world's population. One of the definitions of a Christian is one who follows Christ. But we have to ask the question, which Christ? Our former association said, we need to follow Jesus. But they were leading us to follow a false Jesus. Let's turn to Matthew, the 24th chapter. The Jesus of the Bible warned us and prophesied here in Matthew, the 24th chapter, that there would be counterfeits, that there would be deceivers. Matthew 24 and verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Matthew 24, 24. He says there will be false Christs. And so we need to ask the question, who is the Christ of the Bible? And Dr. Meredith continually on the telecast qualifies that statement, the Christ of the Bible, the God of the Bible, the true Jesus. And the world is deceived. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, where the Apostle Paul again warned the Corinthians that there were false Christs. He put it this way in 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 4. He's talking about deceivers. He says in verse 4, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. They were tolerating false Christ. They were tolerating false gospels. And they were tolerating another Jesus, not the true Jesus of the Bible. There are false messiahs. There is a false Jesus. The one who was born on December 25th is a false Jesus who had long hair. There's a false Jesus who preached platitudes and his person as the center focus of the gospel and neglected the message that is the gospel of the coming kingdom of God. Of course, you can read that in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. The false Jesus of the world teaches that he did away with the commandments and the laws of God. He also did away with the Sabbath and the holy days, this false Jesus. And he also denied the only sign the true Jesus gave of his Messiahship in Matthew 12, verse 40. The counterfeit Christ was only in the grave two nights and one day. The true Christ was in the grave three days and three nights. Of course, you may want to review, if you haven't, uh, Dr. Meredith's sermon a few weeks ago on the failed paradigm of Protestantism. Thousands of books have been written about Christ. So how can you know the true Jesus of your Bible? Who is the real Jesus? And that's the question I want to ask you today. Who is Jesus? The, we've had articles. In fact, the upcoming July, August, Tomorrow's World has a, an article uh, titled, Who Was Jesus? I did a telecast years ago, World Tomorrow telecast, titled, Who Was Jesus? that we taped on location in Jerusalem and parts of Israel. But as we've seen, Christ 
And the Apostle Paul warned us about imposters and counterfeits. We'll just uh, look at a couple of the false teachings. One is that Jesus was a created being. The false teaching comes from an attempt to identify Jesus as Michael, the archangel. You can check that on watchtower.org. Quoting from that particular website, the Bible indicates that Michael is another name for Jesus Christ before and after his life on earth. Michael is the leader of an army of faithful angels. Revelation also describes Jesus as the leader of an army of faithful angels. Since God's word nowhere indicates there are two armies of faithful angels in heaven, one headed by Michael and one headed by Jesus, it is logical to conclude Michael is none other than Jesus Christ in his heavenly role. False doctrine. Can you refute that doctrine? The website goes on to say Jesus is the only one directly created by God. Jesus was created by God? Jesus is the only one whom God used when he created all other things. Well, that's correct. The latter part, the Son was created, is their false doctrine. Obviously, then he had a beginning, whereas Jehovah God has no beginning or end. Now, let's take a look at what the Bible says about that issue just briefly. Let's turn to Jude 14, Jude, and see who Christ is returning with. Is returning with an army of angels. Jude 14. And it's interesting, again, what uh, Jude says in another counterpoint to that false doctrine. Jude 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his angels. No, it doesn't say that. It says, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Christ comes for the saints at the seventh trumpet, and he comes with his saints in Revelation 19, as we'll see in a moment. But while we're here, uh, let's also uh, notice one other point here in uh, Jude, verse 8 of Jude. Likewise, all those dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. He didn't have to call on a higher authority if Michael were Jesus. In other words, Michael did not have the authority to rebuke um, the devil. He contended with him, but Michael called upon the Lord, who had the higher authority, to rebuke the devil. Jesus is not Michael. Michael is not Jesus. Michael is an archangel. And Jesus, of course, is not created. Now let's go back to Revelation 19, uh, briefly, Revelation 19, and see with whom Christ comes to fight the enemies of truth and righteousness. Revelation 19 and verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. 
He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with it, that with it he should smite the nations, strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And we find in Psalm 149 that the saints are going to change the chain and imprison the wicked despots of the world. Now, who are these armies in heaven clothed in fine linen? We let the Bible interpret the Bible. We just go back to verse 7, and we see, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Who's in fine linen here in the context of the sequence of these events? The marriage supper takes place. The saints have fine linen, and they return with Christ to be kings and priests to rule with Christ on the earth. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the angels. No, it says the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so then he goes on to talk about the marriage supper. So we are blessed to realize, again, that Christ is going to marry a converted woman. And that means that we, as God's people, need to be deeply converted. But we see that Christ comes with the thousands of his saints, that Jesus is not Michael. These are two separate armies that uh, are mentioned in the Bible, not the same army. And, of course, the most fundamental proof, as we all know, is John 1.1. John 1. So there are millions of people who follow that wrong doctrine, that say Jesus is Michael, and that Jesus was a created being. Those are false doctrines. Here in John 1, in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. He does not say that in the beginning God created the Word. No, the Word was there from the beginning, was with God, and was God. And of course, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. So in summary, the idea that Jesus is the same as Michael is wrong. The idea that Jesus is created being is heresy. The word of God in the beginning was with God in the beginning. God created all things through Christ, that's Ephesians 3.9. Jesus didn't create himself. So if he... uh, that were created all things by Christ, he would have created himself, which is, of course, a contradiction. We thank God that Jesus was with the Word, was the Word, and was with him in the beginning, and the Word became flesh, as it says in verse 14. Another one is included in a genre of books that attack the divinity of Christ. Uh, There's one book called Misquoting Truth, uh, or Misquoting Jesus, and... uh, You know, when you have these uh, heretical books come out, thankfully, there are counter books that are produced along that line. There's a book titled Misquoting Truth, A Guide to the Fallacies of Misquoting Jesus by Timothy Paul Jones. In other words, all these uh, wrong fallacies, all these wrong heresies 
uh, wrong teachings that come out. Uh, so apparently, some from time to time, there's a book that will counter those wrong teachings. There's another book uh, called The Genus, Jesus Dynasty, and that teaches that Jesus was just uh, physical, uh, that he had a physical father, that he was not divine, and the author of that particular book professes to be a historian. He says, I'm a historian, and so I go to historical sources, which he goes to Gnostic sources and questionable historical sources, and denies the historical sources of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, as well as the other witnesses, the Apostle Paul, born out of season, who saw Christ, 500 witnesses that uh, Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And not only that, but you have the two brothers of Jesus, James and Jude, who wrote epistles, who were converted after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So you have many, many witnesses that testify to the divinity of Christ, to the death, burial, and resurrection. Well, there are other false concepts. One other, one other false concept that has come up recently that was came into, into our uh, personal correspondence department was that Jesus was a Nazarite, therefore he had long hair. So did Jesus have long hair? We've had articles on that, and of course, in the past. Jesus was a Nazarene from Nazareth. He was not a Nazarite. Uh, Matthew 2.23 says he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the prophets, he shall be a Nazarene. But a Nazarene was not a Nazarite, which is mentioned back in uh, the book of Numbers. They were allowed, they were to shave their head and then to let their hair grow and not cut it with a razor, and they were not to drink wine. Uh, Jesus was accused of being a wine-bibber. Why? Because he drank wine. He was accused of being a glutton. Why? Because he ate food. He enjoyed the social events and the dinners. He was, as uh, Bruce Barton says, the most popular dinner guest in all of Jerusalem. Well, let's take a look at uh, what Jesus looks like today. You all know that, but let's read it in Revelation, the first chapter. Revelation 1, starting with verse 14, because I know growing up, in a Protestant Sunday school, I saw the picture of Jesus with the long hair, and that image was just stuck in my brain. And it's hard to get rid of some of those images that you've had as a, as a boy. But when you realize that Jesus now looks like the sun, here in Revelation 1, verse 14, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as it refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So how do you counteract a false concept, which I've had, you know, as a boy, and perhaps some of you did in the past as well? Well, you go to the truth of the Bible, and you look at Christ the way he is. What happened to Bruce Barton 
Bruce Barton was the founder of one of the most successful advertising agencies in the United States. He had a false concept of Jesus of Nazareth. So how did he counter that false concept? He wrote a book titled The Book, uh, The Man, rather, Nobody Knows. He also wrote a book called The Book Nobody Knows. But I'm quoting from the uh, book, and this is a preface he's writing about himself. He says, The little boy looked up at the picture which hung on the Sunday school wall. It showed a pale young man with flabby forearms and a sad expression. The young man had red whiskers. Then the little boy looked across the other wall. There was Daniel, good old Daniel, standing off the lions. The little boy liked Daniel. He liked David, too, with a trusty sling that landed a stone square in the forehead of Goliath. And Moses, with his rod and his big brass snake. They were winners, those three. But Jesus? Jesus was the Lamb of God. The little boy did not know what that meant, but it sounded like Mary's little lamb, something for girls, sissified. Jesus was also meek and lowly, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He went around for three years telling people not to do things. So that was Bruce Barton's impression of Jesus growing up. But when he became a businessman, he saw a contradiction between the concept of Jesus and the spread of Christianity. So he wrote later, in his book, The Man Nobody Knows. The more sermons the man heard, speaking of himself, and the more books he read, the more mystified he became. One day he decided to wipe his mind clean of books and sermons. He said, I will read what the men who knew Jesus personally said about him. I will read about him as though he were a new historical character about whom I have never heard anything at all. So he started from scratch. He said, I'm just going to read the Bible. The man was amazed. A physical weakling? Where did they get that idea? Jesus pushed a plane and swung in ads. He was a successful carpenter. He slept outdoors and spent his days walking around his favorite lake. His muscles were so strong that when he drove the money changers out, nobody dared to oppose him. A killjoy? He was the most popular dinner guest in Jerusalem. The criticism which proper people made was that he spent too much time with publicans and sinners and enjoyed society too much. They called him a wine-bibber and a gluttonous man. When the man finished his reading, he exclaimed, This is a man nobody knows. I had a very similar experience as a 12-year-old. I was going to Sunday school and I questioned whether Jesus even existed. And so I said to myself, I'm going to read the same approach Bruce Barton took, but I didn't know about Bruce Barton at the time. I'm going to read what the authors of the biographers of Jesus wrote, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I started reading. And Matthew is this genealogy. Well, this is a little kind of boring. And then I got reading into the Sermon on the Mount. And then I read as a boy, 12-year-old, that Jesus said, that he that smites you on the cheek turned to him the other also. I said, what? You know, I am a 12-year-old. This is revolutionary. This is totally opposite to what I believe, you know, as a boy. And it had an impact on my life. It changed my life in a small way. God didn't call me until I was around age 25. But in my own limited way, I changed my approach 
to life. And again, I want to encourage all of you to make sure you read the biographies of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are many skeptics in the world who believe that Jesus never existed, and yet, of course, two billion professing Christians believe that he did. And in addition, there are over a billion Muslims who revere and expect, respect Jesus as a prophet. So how can you know that Jesus existed? Well, we've already demonstrated the historical testimony of the writers of the Gospels and the Apostle John. But Josephus was a Jewish historian of the first century. And he wrote about Jesus. He was, didn't believe in Christ as such, uh, but he did testify that he existed. In a comment Josephus makes about uh, James, because James was on trial. In the book Antiquities of the Jews, book 20, chapter 9, section 1, Josephus writes, quote, Festus was now dead, and Albinus was but upon the road. So we assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James. The subject is about James, but he's confirming the relationship to Jesus, whose name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. The apostle James was, st was thrown off the temple uh, mount and then, uh, then killed and executed after that. So there are the eyewitnesses, testimonies, that we talked about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's take a look at 1 John 1, 1 John, the first chapter. <clears throat> and here John says, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now, John is countering the Gnostic teachings here that Jesus was just a, just a uh, phantom, that he really, when he walked, he didn't leave footprints and this type of thing. Uh, and he's saying, no, he was real. He was in the flesh. He was, and we, our hands have touched him. And, of course, I already quoted from 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is now risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and that there were 500 that had seen him who were still alive, uh, as the most part, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6. So there are those testimonies of the historic Jesus. He did live, he was alive as a physical human being, and he was the Son of God and is the Son of God. Now to help you a little more with the, the idea of the fulfillment of prophecy and who Jesus was. He was the prophesied Messiah. Now, this is Halley's Bible Handbook. There are many other uh, Bible handbooks, and there's a chapter here called The Messianic Strain of the Old Testament, Foreshadows and Predictions of the Coming Messiah, starting here on page 387. And the first prophecy of the Messiah is Genesis 3, verse 15. So I'll... <clears throat> refer you to some of those Bible helps for uh, further research. Now, the Old Testament contains more than 300 references 
to the Messiah's coming. One individual some time ago, Peter Stoner, a mathematician, calculated the probabilities by chance of any one person fulfilling just 48 of the Messianic prophecies found in the Old Testament. And the probability that one single person could fulfill all of those 48 prophecies by chance would be 1 to 10 with 157 zeros after it. In other words, it would be impossible. But that's just 48 prophecies. If you consider the over 300 references, then it becomes astronomical. Let's look at Luke 24, 44, and realize what Jesus said about those prophecies. Luke 24, 44, and most of you know from our exhortations on knowing the Bible, knowing your Bible, that this gives the tripartite division of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the law, the prophets, and the writings. Luke 24, verse 44, And he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So the Old Testament, the Scriptures, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings told about the Messiah who is coming. So God has us, given us overwhelming testimony and evidence of His existence and of Christ's powerful authority in the universe. The Bible testifies to the reality and the truth of God's purpose and plan. Abraham Lincoln once said, and this is from Halley's Bible Handbook, President Abraham Lincoln said, quote, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Now, how can you get better acquainted with someone? Well, you know as much as you can about that person. And in Jesus' case, you want to know as one aspect, his titles and his names. So how well do you know Jesus of Nazareth? How well do you know the true Christ of the Bible? For example, could you right now list at least 20 titles or names of Jesus from the Bible? Well, let's review some of those titles and names. There are many, uh, again, Bible resources, dictionaries. The Companion Bible, for example, Appendix 4 and Appendix 98 list many of the titles and names of Jesus. But let's look at a few directly from the Bible ourselves. Let's turn to Isaiah, the ninth chapter. Isaiah 9. Those of you who have heard uh, Handel's Messiah have heard this sung many times. Wonderfully placed in music. Isaiah 9, starting in verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Here again, child is capitalized. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, 
Everlasting Father. He's a father to Israel. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward even forever. The zeal of the eternal of hosts will perform this. So again, it's a reality. We look forward to that government of God coming on earth. So here we have several of his names. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. John 14.6 is a very fundamental revelation of Jesus' calling, his character, his position, office, and mission, and who and what he was and is. John 14 and verse 6. And Jesus said to them, after Thomas said, Well, Lord, how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I hope when you're praying, you think of Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Just over the page, John 15, we find another descriptor of Christ. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may be bear more fruit. Verse 5. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing of lasting value. So you have an intimate relationship with the vine. You are the branches. You're connected with the true Christ of the Bible. And that's got to be a viable and energetic and nourished connection. Are we intimately connected to the true Christ of the Bible. Remember that we are also the body of Christ. I won't turn there, but 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27. Let's turn the page again. One of the scriptures Dr. Meredith reads often, and we read at the Passover, that is just so profound and inspiring. It just shows how we're connected to Him. Verse 21, well, he prays for those who will believe on him through the words of the apostles. John 17, 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. We are unified in Christ and in the Father. We are connected. We're bonded. We're joined together through God's Spirit. Of course, Christ is the head of the body, and we are members of that body. Let's take a look at a few more of the titles and names of Jesus. Turn back to John, the sixth chapter. John 6. We eat physical bread every day, but are we eating spiritual bread every day? John 6, verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He is the bread of life. John 10. Again, we find another descriptor here. 
John 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And of course he says, my sheep hear my voice. John 10 and verse 27. And I hope we hear Christ's voice through his ministry, through the writings, through the telecast, uh, through the sermons. But Jesus is the good shepherd. Of course, some of you know Psalm 23. How many of you know can recite Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Oh, my. I guess you hadn't... Uh, only a few of us had a Protestant background and memorized Psalm 23 when we were kids. But Psalm 23 is a good psalm to remember. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh Roi, I shall not want. He leads me into pastures green. We sing that song. Over the page uh, here, John 11, verse 25. John 11 and verse 25. Remember, this is the resurrection of Lazarus. And another, again, Jesus tells Mary who he is, or Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Here are two more titles. Christ, the Anointed One. Then the Hebrew, Messiah. Of course, in Hebrew, um, Yeshua Mashiach, the Son of God who has come into the world. So he is the resurrection and the life. Let's go on to Mark, uh, back up <clears throat> to the book of Mark, chapter 2. <clears throat> Something I've mentioned in the Tomorrow's World Bible lecture from time to time, not always, just depending on circumstances, but I was reading this in uh, the Los Angeles presentation. <clears throat> we were talking about uh, the Seventh-day Sabbath, and uh, Mark 2, verse 27, he said to me, The Sabbath was made for man, not for the Jews, but for man, and not man from the se for the Sabbath. Of course, that was done at creation. Therefore, <clears throat> verse 28, the Son of Man is also Lord of Sunday. No, our, Sunday is not the Lord's day. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And uh, get a few smiles from the audience when I mention that to them. All right, uh, hang in there. We're talking about our Savior and brother and getting to know him more as he testifies of his own character and nature. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, one that should be very personal to every one of us because we know that Jesus suffered for us, was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. <clears throat> Verse 14, Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. <clears throat> let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he is our great high priest. Let's go to uh, Revelation 17. We're looking at some of the titles and names of Christ. Revelation 17. 
and verse 14, talking about the beast power and the ten kings. These will make war with the Lamb. Revelation 17:14, And the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. That means you and me. That means that you and I must be called, chosen, and faithful. But Jesus is called the Lamb. And it's amazing that as you think about the book of Revelation, that Jesus will always be remembered as the Lamb. One little Bible study for you is to just go through the book of Revelation and circle or highlight everywhere that Jesus is called the Lamb. It's the marriage of the Lamb. We read in Revelation 19.7. And in chapter 22, uh, he's mentioned that there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. So Christ's sacrifice as the Lamb shall always be remembered, and remembered uh, several times, of course, in the book of Revelation. And as the Lamb, of course, He took away the sins of the world. He was our Passover sacrifice for us, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Let's take a look at one more scripture before we go on to to uh, major titles of Jesus. Well, we've already talked about major titles. They're all major in one sense. But here is a testimony, not from the Jews, but from Samaritans, as to who Jesus is. John 4. And we start here in verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in Him, because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. <clears throat> so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Verse 42, John 4. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because what you said to the woman, but we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. The world needs saving, and there's only one Savior who will save it. In Acts 4.12, it says, There's no other name under heaven by which man shall be saved. So all of the religions of the world are going to have to someday repent and come to understand the true Christ, and accept His name and His authority over their lives. I won't turn there, but I'll just refer to you that to uh, Doubting Thomas in John 20, you know, when he doubted Jesus, and Jesus said, Don't be doubting. Believe. Put your hand in My side and your finger in the holes. And what did He say? He said, My Lord and My God. Have you ever said that to Christ? Jesus is also our brother. We are co-heirs, joint heirs with Him, as it tells us in Romans 8. And if we're children of God, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with Him. That's Romans 8, 17. 
that we may be also glorified together. Let's turn to Hebrews, the second chapter. Hebrews 2. What is your relationship with Christ? Do you have a personal relationship? Is it an intimate relationship? Hebrews 2 and verse 9. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, <clears throat> in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation, another description of Christ, perfect through sufferings. Both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Your Savior is willing to call you his brother and his sister. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. And then he quotes from Psalm 22:22, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. You think of all the great tenors that you heard over the years, uh, Caruso and... Uh, I won't mention all the other great tenors, but Christ will outshine all of them. We will hear him sing in the midst of the congregation. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praises to you. He has also called us our friend. Let's turn back to John 15 and verse 19. You know, a friend is one with whom you share intimate secrets or information. There is a level of intimacy when you get to know someone. What's your name? Where are you from? What kind of work do you do? But then as you get to know someone, you begin to risk sharing information that is personal. And we, of course, share very personal information if we are confessing our sins with God the Father. And here he says in John 15, verse 9, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, and just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you just seems that the Protestant world just repulses, just rejects the idea of commandments and obedience. That They say, well, that, that's works. If you command, if you obey God or you keep commandments, that's, that's salvation by works. But Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that a man than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. And when you look at uh, Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and you read about Enoch and Noah and Abraham, what were they called? A friend of God.
And so God has called us to be a friend of His, to be a friend of Christ. Now we've covered several of the titles and names of Christ. I'll just uh, refer you here again to Halley's Bible Handbook. This is page 542, Names and Titles Applied by the Scripture to Christ. I won't read them all, but just a sampling of them. The Christ, the Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, Wonderful Counselor, Faithful Witness, the Word of God, the Truth, the Light of the World, the Way, the Good Shepherd, Mediator, Deliverer, the Great High Priest, the Author and Perfecter of our Faith, the Captain of our Salvation, our Advocate, which is 1 John 2 and verse 1, and we have, of course, an Accuser of the Brethren, Satan the Devil, who goes around accusing the brethren. But we have an Advocate, a Defender, that's uh, 1 John 2. The only begotten Son, mighty God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Holy One of God, the image of God, Lord, Lord of all, Lord of glory, Lord of lords, blessed and only potentate, King of Israel, King of kings, ruler of the kings of the earth, Prince of life, Prince of peace, the Son of David, the branch, David, root and offspring of David, the bright morning star, Emmanuel, God with us, the second Adam, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Those are just, again, some of the names of Christ. So what must we do? We understand who and what Christ is, that He's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. He was with God in the beginning. He was the Logos, the Word that was made flesh. He was God, and He was more worth all the human beings put together so that He could sacrifice His life and pay for all the sins of the world. So I'm going to give you five action items to get better acquainted with your Savior in the remainder of the sermon. Number one is to ask Him to save you. So, well, I don't need to ask Him to save me. <clears throat> but He tells us in Romans 5, in verse 10, if you want to turn there, of course, Scripture which I quote frequently, and one that answers the question, Are you saved, brother? In part... Romans 5, verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And I don't know if you've ever asked God to save you at any time or other. I have. When I've been in trouble, I've asked for deliverance. I've asked God to save me, to deliver me out of certain uh, problems and circumstances. And we actually have a uh, hymn that we sing, Save me, O God, by thy great name, and save me by your strength, or judge me by your strength, which means to deliver me. Let's turn back to Psalm 6. Psalm 6. Now, King David wasn't afraid to ask God to save him. And, uh, of course, we know the answer to the question, Are you saved? You, we have been saved from our past sins, by the blood of Christ, we are now being saved, present progressive tense, and we shall be saved by his life, as we just read in Romans 5.10. How did David approach the Lord? He says here in verse 4, Psalm 6, Return, O Eternal, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. 
In the grave, who will give you thanks? I always have to smile and ask the question, you know, if you're asking God to deliver you from death, you've got to give him a good reason to keep you alive. And so David's giving him the reason. He's saying, well, if I'm dead, you're not going to hear me giving you thanks. So you need to keep me alive so you can hear me giving you praise and thanks. In the grave, who will give you thanks? Then Psalm 7, verse 1. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces where there is none to deliver. So number one is ask God to save you. Ask Christ to save you and thank Him for saving you. The second is to learn about Christ daily. Let's turn to Matthew, the first chapter. Matthew 1. Of course, we've been talking about one way of learning about Christ is to know Him, to know His titles, to know His character, to know His nature, His titles, and His names. Matthew 11, uh, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Of course, he tells us in Matthew 7 that we need to be like the wise man who built his house on a rock, And he talks about that rock as being the words of Christ. That We practice them, we know them, and we are building our house upon a rock. And of course, it's another title for Christ as well, the rock of Israel. But he says, learn from me. The second action we need to take is to learn from him. There are many ways, of course, of learning about him by reading the uh, scriptures. Uh, One way that we found, and uh, several of us have had the privilege of going to Israel and traveling across the places where Jesus walked. As I mentioned, we did do a couple telecasts on the uh, on site in Jerusalem. And uh, my, uh, my wife and I uh, took a taxi one time. We heard uh, a statement that, no, Bethany was, you know, that was not that far away, and we should uh, take a taxi out there. So we did, and we had a tour by one of the local men out there. I saw the uh, supposed the traditional house of Lazarus and the tomb of Lazarus. And I asked the man, well, how long it would it take to walk up to the Mount of Olives and then over the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount? Would it take about uh, an hour? Said, oh, no, it would take about 20 minutes, or I think it was about 20 minutes. So my wife and I walked up the road from Bethany, through Beth Fage, where Jesus got the donkey, and then all the way up to the top of the Mount of Olives, and we we're surprised it was just less than a half an hour. And that's where Jesus and the disciples often would go. They would go to Beth- Bethany uh, to see at, at Lazarus' home. So it was uh, an amazing perspective to see how close Bethany was to the Mount of Olives, and then you go down the Kidron Valley uh, to the Temple Mount. There's another way uh, that just came out in the International Jerusalem Post this past week, uh, June 4th through the 10th, 2010. And this is called uh, the Jesus Trail. Recently mapped out the Jesus Trail, a 62-kilometer, 38-mile walk from Nazareth to Capernaum, was set up to appeal mostly to Christian pilgrim travelers 
uh, or pilgrim traveler who wants to follow the way of Jesus is set out in Matthew 4:13 through 16, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. So you can walk the same area that Jesus walked in this uh, particular program. The four-day walk, starting off at an elevation of 460 meters, 1,500 feet, and ending at about 100 meters below sea level, is also a realistic possibility for those who find the country-spanning Israel Trail too daunting. The Jesus Trail is doable for the type of walker who likes a shower, a restaurant meal, and a bed at the end of each day of four to six hours of hiking. So uh, that's one way you can uh, learn more about the perspective and the context of Jesus' life in Israel. Again, how much do you know about the true Christ of the Bible? Our official statement of fundamental beliefs is as follows. The Living Church of God, with its denominational world headquarters in the United States of America, has members in many countries around the world and fulfills a threefold mission. One, to preach the true gospel of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 8 and verse 12, to all nations as a witness. Two, to feed the flock and organize local church congregations to provide for the spiritual and material needs of our members as God makes it possible. Three, to preach the end-time prophecies and to warn the English-speaking nations and all the world of the coming Great Tribulation. So again, how can we, number two, learn about him daily? One way is to meditate on our common experiences. Now, you're close to someone with whom you've shared a trial, a test, or a common experience. And uh, we think about all the common experiences we've had with the, the trials of the church-state uh, crisis back in January of uh, 1979. Uh, we think of uh, other trials that we've gone through. But let's take a look at 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. What have you shared in common with Christ? 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Now, if you've never suffered, then perhaps you haven't shared something in common with Christ. 1 Peter 4, verse 12, we've experienced this cyclically in times in the church. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. When you suffer, do you think of it as partaking of Christ's sufferings? When I was in extreme pain with my back problem, I was yelling. And I could understand to the smallest degree the pain that Christ suffered. We have common experiences. We suffer with Him. It says in, I won't turn there, Romans 8, verse 17, if children and heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. That's Romans 8 and verse 17. Let's turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 12. 
The Apostle Paul considered his suffering shared with Christ. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. Remember, Paul beseeched the Lord three times that this thorn in the flesh would depart from him. But verse 9, the answer from the Lord came to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. We have shared suffering with Christ. We are also crucified with Him. If you think about that, as Dr. Meredith has quoted so many times, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. You'll have to meditate about that and think, how are you crucified with Christ? Have you put to death and mortified the deeds of the flesh, as it tells us in Colossians 3? So, we need to again learn more about Christ. We have many sermons in our sermon library. Uh, Dr. Meredith had a sermon number 516. Do you have a profound relationship with Jesus Christ? And then 527, Jesus our Savior, High Priest, and Friend. So as an action, number two, learn about Him daily. Number three, and these overlap, Follow Him daily. You learn about Him, but now you walk with Him daily. Mark 8 and verse 34. Mark 8 and verse 34. When He had called the people to Himself with His disciples also, He said to them, Whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of of his father. So he says that we need to take up our cross and follow him. In verse 23, he says, sorry, that's Luke 9, uh, verse 23. Let's go back over a couple page. Luke 9 and verse 23 is the daily concept, parallel account. Luke 9, 23. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So number three is to follow him daily. Number four is to walk with him. And again, I say these all overlap. We follow him daily. We learn from him every day. And we walk with him. Colossians 2, uh, verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And just think as you take walks. I don't know if you do take walks. Uh, we know of someone in here who walks and jogs four or five miles a day. 
and uh, I haven't made that as a goal myself. Uh, but nonetheless, I do go walking at times. And I think, as I was walking last night, I thought, well, you know, am I walking with Christ? Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught. There are some people in the church who are unteachable. They're independent. They're radicals. They, they're not humbling themselves before God with a teachable attitude. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So number four is to walk with Him. Number five is to talk to Jesus. We know that Christ told us to pray to the Father, and that is our main prayer. The Father and Christ are one, and so He's hearing all our prayers. He knows what we say. But on occasion, we should talk to Him. We know the next to the last verse in the Bible. In Revelation 22.20, the Apostle John had a very close relationship with the Lamb, with the true Jesus. Verse 20, Revelation 22. He, meaning Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. And John says, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. He spoke directly to Him. Then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And then you know the story of Stephen, the martyr. Acts 7, verse 55. Let's turn there. Acts, the seventh chapter. And here, Stephen was telling the whole history of Israel to show that he was supportive of the history of Israel and of the coming of the Messiah and the whole plan of God. But something must have kicked in that God inspired him to tell them that they were hypocrites in verse 51 of Acts 7. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. We must be led by the Spirit of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God, Romans 8, verse 14. But notice when he was being executed, verse 55, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So they thought that was blasphemy, ran after him, and stoned Stephen, verse 59, as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So we talk to God the Father, we talk to our Lord and Savior Christ as well. We need to develop an intimate relationship with our Savior. We have actually a sermon by that title, An Intimate Relationship. It's sermon number 225. But what is your relationship with Him? We already read Revelation 19.7, that the bride has made herself ready. So how converted are you? Are you looking forward to that wedding supper? Are you looking forward to the marriage of the Lamb. Now, for us men, it's a little difficult. It's, we don't normally think of getting married to Christ, but we are the body of Christ. He is the head of the church, the Savior of the body. 
And we need to think of our relationship to Him, that we are, by analogy, ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, we are bondservants of Christ. So it tells us in Ephesians 6, verses 5 and 6. So today we've had a brief introduction to the question, who was Jesus? We should always be able to answer the question, who is Jesus? He's alive today, preparing to return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're carrying on the work He gave to His church to preach the gospel and to repair the world for the return of Christ. We're carrying on the work that God established through His servant, Herbert W. Armstrong. Let's turn to Hebrews, the third chapter, Hebrews 3. Shortly after Mr. Armstrong's death in in January 1986, I was in the auditorium Sabbath services with a deaconess, and she was sitting. I was sitting next to her, and she said she was mourning the death of Mr. Armstrong, and she said, "We've lost our apostle. We don't have an apostle." And I said, "Yes, we do." Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Always remember and consciously thank God that we have an apostle and high priest. Remember his love as we read earlier, or heard earlier, John 3.16, that he loves us, as it tells us in Galatians 2.20, who loved me and gave himself for me, the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20. So we must live in him and he in us. How do we know if he's living in us? How do we know that we are living in him? The answer is in 1 John 3 and verse 24. 1 John 3 and verse 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And the capital of pronoun H-E is um, capitalized to show it's talking of the divinity. And by this we know that he abides in us. How do we know that? By the Spirit, which, should read, He has given us. So by God's Spirit, we know that He lives in us. Let's take a look at one other final scripture, Matthew 28. Matthew, the 28th chapter. Christ has given us awesome promises that He will never break off His relationship with us. It's only us who may break off our relationship with Him. In Matthew 28 and verse 18, He says, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth, or in the King James, all power. That means the whole universe. In fact, the Moffat translation in Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says, He reflecting God's bright glory and stamped with God's own character sustains the universe with His word of power. Uh, some of you more recently have uh, sent me uh, an email showing 
the NASA Hubble uh, Galaxy photos. Just uh, some of you haven't seen them. I recommend you go ahead and Google NASA Hubble Galaxies and take a look at some of those awesome galaxies and understand that Jesus is the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power. He knows all those galaxies, the majestic Sombrero Galaxy, M104, the Whirlpool Galaxy, M51, the Cartwheel Galaxy, and the Spiral Galaxy. Christ has all power and authority in the universe. And that's the power by which we will complete the work that he's given us to accomplish. So let's dedicate ourselves to complete the mission that Christ has given us. We can do it because he has all authority and power in the universe. And as the Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So remember your Savior. Know who he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's the bread of life. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the great shepherd. And he's coming back as our Savior. He is the Savior of the world. He's the Son of Man, the Son of God. He is the coming one. He is our friend, our Savior, our High Priest, our Lord, and our coming King of kings. Let's develop that intimate relationship with God the Father, and with Christ now and forever.